I'm talking of um, Paul Thomas Anderson. Not Paul Two... Thomas, Paul WS. I'll start again. Uh... <laughs> Hi, and welcome to episode 31 of The Film File, the film show for film geeks, by film geeks, and no film geek can ever top my film geek. <laughs> I'm your film geek now, yeah, am I? Film. <laughs> well, you know, as will be revealed in this episode, uh, at the moment you are wearing the crown of film geekery. Uh, well, yeah, not just that. I've got the crystal ball of geekery as well, apparently. Yeah. Uh, which we will we will cover in a little while. How are you doing in uh, uh, in lockdown world? It looks like at this stage that there is the potential for, and you're starting to see the clues if you've watched enough movies, to some other kind of second wave on the horizon. There seem to be small moves that that make it suspicious. Yeah. On the positive side, we're looking forward to, we've announced a reopening date for our cinema. Oh, good. Um, good. So we've only got a couple more weeks. So over the next two weeks, I'll start to be going into work a bit more often to get things set up behind the scenes. But, you know... If, if a second wave is going to hit, are we out of the first wave yet? I, I'm not too sure on that. No. But if a second wave hits, then obviously that will lock everything down again. So while there's optimism there, there's also that little scepticism at the back of my mind saying, but, you know, a week from now, everything in the world could be different. Well, we're going away. We're having a family few days, which I think is, is basically a window of opportunity because uh, I, I do get the feeling that, we could get that 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 message saying um, where we live is going to be locked down or where we're going is going to be locked down, uh, as has happened in in other cities around the country at this moment in time. But yeah, but it's trying to remain positive, looking forward to to getting away. But if you're a film file follower, which please don't ask me to say that again, if you're a film file <laughs> follower, uh, then you always know that you're in for an action-packed show this week on the show. We will be, of course. Andy will be scouring the internet for news. We'll be looking at our Andy's Missing Classic, which is Peter Jackson's Heavenly Creatures. And we'll be doing a deep dive into Douglas Trumbull's sci-fi classic, Silent Running. But of course, first up, Andy, the man with the news. What news do you have us? I know we've got some biggies this week. Yeah, there's um, there's some key news i mean tenet which we spoke about a few weeks ago as potentially, week, let's be honest Andy. potentially having a few problems with the chinese market because they were, they were putting restrictions on films being two hours or less well they've appealed to the chinese government who've approved the film for release with a full runtime of two hours 30 minutes so that's the chinese market covered they've not got a release date for it in china yet but now that they know that they can release it there that's put a huge chunk of the market back on the table Okay. Which basically means that it's only the US that uh, have the potential to be delayed because they're going to be getting it after everyone else at this point in time in the US. So it's it's going to be the film that launches cinemas back. And that's why we're planning to reopen for the 21st because Tenet comes out less than a week after that. Fingers crossed, of course. At the same time, a trailer for Dune is expected to arrive this month, and everyone is suspecting that it will be tagged to the front of Tenet. Dune is a is a Warner Brothers film, film isn't it? It is, yes. So, it's, okay, so it's, it makes sense for them to attach it. Makes perfect sense. Now, I had read some reports that Dune is still aiming for that pre-Christmas release, 
But because of all the shutdowns, it's put a lot of pressure on the team there to deliver it. Hopefully, no shortcuts will get taken, and hopefully we will get to see it deliver the masterpiece that everyone's expecting. Well, I, for one, am looking forward to it. I'm just looking forward to seeing what it looks like. I'm intrigued so far by the shots we've seen. Well, I'm not a huge Dune fan, and most of Dune for me comes from, from the David Lynch movie, which, of course, we'll have to deep dive before the new Dune movie. Yeah. Yeah. I am intrigued to see what it looks like, see what he's done. He's such a fantastic director. Uh, Arrival is is up there in my all-time favourite sci-fi movies. I think it's I think it's spectacular. I'm, I'm looking forward just to seeing a, a few snippets of it. But I know he's under pressure to to get this ready for a, for a release. And this is the reason that, that cinemas need to be open. I know we're going to talk about some films that are going straight to uh, VOD, but I, I want to see Dune in a cinema. I want to see it on a big screen. Yeah. I want to see it with the full surround sound, the way that, that nature intended it to be seen. Whenever we do the uh, Sunday Twitter movie talk chats, occasionally we talk about any films that you missed in such and such a year that you wished you had a scene on the big screen. And people always say, oh, this is one that I missed because this would have been so much more impact on the big screen. And there are films like that. I know there's a huge amount of people who are saying, oh, you can get the same experience at home with your same setup. You can't. You've not got a 30-foot screen. You've not got 12 speakers. You've not got that environment. Absolutely agree. Yeah, cinema, for some films, cinema is kind of key and critical. And we'll get back to that in a bit. What else you got? Shang-Chi. The sets have been spotted being built, confirming the production is restarting in Sydney. And Michelle Yeoh has been confirmed to be appearing in the film, or apparently everyone's suspected that it's confirmed, because this, the cast and crew, as we've been talking about previously for these productions, are getting put into lockdown when they enter the country, and they have to stay in quarantine for two weeks before they can go to shooting. Well, she's been taking snaps from her hotel quarantine in Sydney, where the shooting is due to start. Uh, um, She's in the same hotel where other cast and crew that are known of are placed into that isolation. So it's pretty clear that she's attached to the film in some some way, shape or form. And Shang-Chi was one of the first films to to shut down, wasn't it? Remember when we we first talked about the the impact it was having as it ravaged across the film industry and, and Shang-Chi was on the list of films that were, that were shutting down production followed yep. quickly by, you know, Bond uh, Bond was the first film to be delayed and, and, and pushed back. And, and Shang-Chi was on that, on that list of, of, of films that were closing production dates. How things go. Yeah. Ev- everything's up in the air, but yeah. at least there's things start to get into momentum. Uh, Paul W.S. Anderson's Monster Hunter with, um, oh, what's that lass who occasionally puts in his films? Uh, oh, Miller you something. mean The Wife? Yeah. Uh, well, that was due to be released before Christmas. It's now going to be April 2021. The film apparently is 100% complete. It's in the cam. It's all, all post-process and effects, everything sorted. It was planned for a Labor Day weekend but was moved because of the results of various shuffles due to some pandemic that's going on. I don't know. Uh, For those who aren't familiar with it, it's it's adapted from the game series, and Jovovich plays the leader of a UN military team who find themselves transported to another realm, which is populated with monsters, and they must team up with a monster hunter, played by Tony Jaa, to close the portal and save Earth. Okay, it sounds sounds passable. It's pretty much Paul W.S. Anderson fair going for like you look at his past record of films and generally 
this is what he does. He does the big showcase video gamey kind of films. Um, I've got a soft spot for him. Yeah, he was once seen as the saviour of the British film industry. I don't know if, if, if that's a label that he needed to carry on with. He's done stuff that I like more often than not. I, f- I find most of his stuff fairly tepid. I think it's style over substance. Event yeah. Horizon is still the best thing he's done, in in my opinion. Uh, oh, it definitely. A, it was the closest to feeling like a complete movie. I know it was a slightly butchered cut. Funny enough, I've just had a conversation saying that's the one film you would love to see a director's cut of. Yeah, that, that's been campaigned for multiple times through the years. And I know that there's been stories that some of the original cut footage has gone. It's missing. But yeah, it's destroyed, apparently. I did, I did read over the past few years that some of that suspected to be destroyed footage has been uncovered. So well, there's still a potential for them to put things back together. I would certainly see it. I would, If it was out there, I would certainly see it. And talking of Paul W.S. Anderson, uh, not only has there been announced an Event Horizon TV series, I've not heard any further news on where we are with that. But also, he is involved, I believe, with a TV version of Guillermo del Toro's uh, Mimic. Yeah, he's... Um... Story has it that Anderson is on board to direct the first episode and also produce the series, which for Anderson is return to a horror genre. Yeah. And knowing what he did with Event Horizon all those years ago, I think it's quite a good choice of a horror genre as well, because Mimic, you know, a film about genetically engineered cockroaches that infest the Manhattan subways, turn to six feet tall and can mimic their prey. It was chilling. It was disturbing. It was twisted. And I'd love to see what Anderson can do with this. So this is the kind of news that gets me excited. It's when we talked about TV series inspired by movies, uh, we never thought about, about Mimic. I could see I could see how it goes being a detective story into the investigation of uh, disappearances and see those characters enter the world of, of, uh, of the Mimics and find a little bit of backstory. I never saw any of the sequels to the movies, the straight to... Uh, straight to video movies yeah so i don't know if the world's ever been explored where they come from but it certainly offers it certainly offers that insight into it should we move on to the the big sweeping news of this this past week yes please so let's start with let's take our mind back to about a month and a half ago when amc and universal fell out we were there we covered that story we covered that in quite a lot of detail and as part of that I speculated and posited the idea that it would, it would result in an agreement coming between them, which would have a three-week window for the majority of films, although they would still want to release their big blockbusters for a longer window at the cinemas, and then they go to streaming. Well, funnily enough, the deal has been struck with AMC, which pretty much matches exactly what I theorised. And The exact workings are a lot more complicated, and, and not everything's been revealed, but They've said that films like your Jurassic World, etc., they won't go to home streaming as fast as 17 days. But the smaller releases that would have had one or two weeks at the cinema and then get pulled, they will now be released after 17 days onto video on demand. And AMC will get a small bit of the percentage of the video on demand sales. Does that mean everybody's happy? No, because it, it means that AMC and Universal are happy, but AMC aren't the only chain. So Regal, who Cineworld own, they're definitely not happy about this because this agreement has been reached without their involvement and it's something that will affect the whole industry. 
they are furious, for want of a better word of this. Independent cinemas are furious as well, because they've basically been steamrolled into having to accept a short window because the biggest chain has made that agreement for them. And a lot of indie cinemas are saying that this could put them out of business because they rely on getting that, you know, when, when all the big cinemas like show something for two weeks and then pull it because it's not doing great business there, they thrive in the indie cinemas. The indie cinemas will keep them running for six, seven, eight weeks. Now, if it's just going to be on video and demand three weeks later, indie cinemas have no income. And a lot of, a lot of those smaller films take time to build up an audience, to build up that awareness. Yep. To to develop box office by word of mouth because those are the chains and those are the sort of movies which are the which are the perfect fodder for that. You know, you you go and see it because it might be a critical review that that's turned your head on it. You know, if you go to your 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 multiplex and there are six screens showing the next Jurassic Park and only one screen in one city showing the small indie, and then you wait for it to move into the smaller cinema chain where it finds its feet, where it finds it finds an audience. Yep. Those films don't have the marketing push. Those films are the ones that do take time to sort of generate heat. I can see how on, on paper it sort of makes sense pushing into the VOD, but it's not giving those, those films that, the chance to, to find an audience. So one, of, one of the issues that there is is that AMC will get a cut of the video-on-demand sales. So are Regal going to get a cut as well? Are other cinemas going to get a cut of the video on demand sales? There's a there's a huge amount that is causing a lot of disruption in the industry. And at the same time, other studios have said that they don't agree with this and they don't intend to follow suit. Disney have categorically said that they have no intention of doing a three-week window. And why would they when their releases tend to have good runs on cinemas? Yeah. However, on that point, within a matter of days, one film that probably would have had a good run in cinemas... And again, this is something that we spoke about in recent weeks and pretty much speculated the we exact outcome. It, Andy, we nailed it. We absolutely nailed it. Mulan will be heading for Disney+. Plus. The Chinese market will still be getting it as the, at the cinemas, which we pretty much stated that the Chinese market would still get it as a cinema because that's the huge market that they're targeting for and everywhere else in the world would get Disney+. Plus. Uh, the date, it's the beginning of September. Now, the only thing that we were out with is I said back end of August. So I was out by a matter of a week. To be fair, though, I, I'm not going to put down any of the any of the film podcasts because, hey, we didn't hear <laughs> From what I gather, the US are getting it before we have a, have a date yes. in mind. Yeah, the US get it at the beginning of September. We should be getting it towards the back end of September. Um, the The problem is that they've slapped a $30 fee. I was just about to say, access it. There, is, uh, there is a catch to this. If you, even if you are a uh, Disney Plus subscriber, this is a, a premium film to pay for, which I understand. I, I, hey, don't get me wrong. I can see the advantages to the studio. There's a, it's not, not like Hamilton, yeah. where the investment went in, in paying for the film. For distribution, this is a film that has a hefty budget that needs to be paid for. Now, the response online to this news has been largely critical and negative. Really? Yes. Film fans being critical and negative? You, you do shock me, sir. It's because the, the, the double whammy, the, the charging a premium rental fee of $30, 
So Trolls 2 had a $20 one. Invisible Man had a $20 one. Why did Disney think, seem to want to justify $30 for their one? But at the same time, if you're not already a Disney Plus subscriber, you also have to pay the $7.99 monthly fee in order oh, to watch okay. it. So that pushes it to almost $40. And that that is leaving a bit of taste in people's mouths. Now, the whole detail haven't been released. Is it a rental? Will it have a 48-hour window like most of the others? Or will the charge mean the content is there for you permanently? So we don't know those details yet. But it, people are balking at this idea that you have to subscribe to a service just so you can then pay to access something on that service. It's it's a double whammy of cost. Well, I mean, okay. If you've got the savvy to say, right, Andy, come up to Ford Towers, uh, bring the kids, we'll make a night of it, we'll, we'll split it. You know, it's, then it's cheaper than going to the cinema to see it. Although this is one of the films that I hinted at earlier that I feel the cinema would be ideal for it. The trailers oh, look sumptuous. The visuals look amazing. And unless you've got a home cinema, as in you have a home theatre of 20 feet screen, it's not going to have that impact. And for this reason, when it comes out, I will not be waiting. I will be not, not be choosing to pay to watch it. I'll be waiting until six months down the line when it's free on Disney Plus, and then I'll watch yeah. it because I I don't agree that this should have gone to Disney Plus. I speculated that it will. I pretty much talked about how it would. I think that if any cinemas in the world can show it, they should be given the option to show it as well. It should not be a simple oh well if Disney Plus is available in your in your location, then it's not getting a cinema release. I think there should be a double choice there. I'm just going to play. Um, I'm going to play devil's advocate just for the moment, which is if you've got a product uh, and film as a product, and it's sat on the shelf, not being sold, not creating any revenue, then it's simply losing money. It's losing. It's losing its worth. You know, people have been paid to develop that product. People have been paid to execute all the work on it, and it's sat on your shelf doing nothing. Then eventually, you've got to reach a point and go. I have to get this product out. I have got to get it seen or, or whatever the product is out in, into an audience where it can be purchased and bought. From from that aspect, I totally understand. And I think a film like Mulan is where where Disney are going to be testing the waters with it because you, you will, if this does carry on, if the, the pandemic is constantly, constantly changing release dates, these films are just losing money. Studios are losing money on it. They can only put out a certain amount of, back catalogue stuff. But if it comes round to Black Widow, which is which would be a game changer if Marvel ever decide, look, it's we've got to get the ball rolling again, and Black Widow goes straight to Disney Plus with a, a thirty bucks charge, we'll all be in. And um, Bob Chapnack, the CEO of Disney, has said that there's no plans for other films to follow suit. Black Widow is still planned for a cinema release. They have no intention to copy this. And he's describing this as a, a unique film and a unique situation. However, we need to remember that only a month ago, Disney were denying that Mulan would ever get a video on demand release over cinema. So let's not hold our breath that he's telling the truth here. Uh, as we said, when we last talked about this whole speculation, I've already called it for Soul going straight to Disney+. Plus. Let's see if I can get three for three, because we've done really good with predictions and fortune telling. <laughs> we, are, we are becoming the show can tell what's going to happen a month or two down the line. And that should be one of the reasons we can sell this show. Um, well, I've only got one listener on board with it today. Um, after I said, I posted to say 
that we we talked about this and we basically covered this, this, this. And he's like, oh, where'd you get your podcast? So I've pointed him in the direction. He started listening from the first episode. So he, he'll, he'll get to this one. After, he'll, he'll get to this one after 30 hours of listening. And so, um, hi, <laughs> thank you for joining us. <laughs> yeah. We will be selling T-shirts one day. He <laughs> was right. T-shirts and mugs. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so that's, a huge amount of changes within the industry. The AMC deal with Universal that has jolted everyone and Dis- Disney Plus being used with an additional premium charge for a straight-to-video on demand. So it's really shook things up. But we'll cover that when anything comes out or we'll speculate it on the next episode as to what's going to happen in the world and then we'll sit back and tick off the boxes if we get everything right. We will. <laughs> Moving Let's on. move on. Let's move on to, right, we've spoken about one of the Andersons. We've spoken about Paul W.S. Anderson. Let's have a quick update on P.T. Anderson. Hey, what's he got in development? We, so we've spoken previously about his untitled early 70s project that will follow multiple storylines but be focused and centred around a kid attending high school in the Valley. Well, we've now got one bit of confirmation on the film is that Bradley Cooper is now on board to star, but we don't know who has. Okay. And that's all. That's all that we know. <laughs> Very watchable actor. Like him in most things. Uh, I think he's just got that. He's got that kind of easy charm. Yeah, and I think he could work well in a P.T. Anderson film because how he uses his it? cast is absolutely amazing. And I think, yeah, we've we've seen what he can do with the character-based things alongside other directors. Most notably in films like Silver Lining Playbooks. You know, we we know what he can do. So I'm I'm really intrigued to see who else gets added into this mix because it sounds like it's going to be a feel of early P.T. Anderson. Oh, I hope so. I'd like to see him go back to that. I like his uh, I like his vignette movies. I like the, the kind of episodic stuff he he started with. I've not been as much a fan over his later period. I know you are. Yes. I've sort of moved away from it. I've I've not enjoyed it. It's not always a likable world that I'm stepping into. I, I can't not admit that he's a fantastic filmmaker. His work just it doesn't speak to me as, as much as his early work does. Other confirmed casting. So we speculated, and we kind of speculated this, but Courtney Cox is confirmed to be back for Scream 5. Yeah, we knew she would be. It was pretty obvious anyway. They, they, would, they already had David Arquette on board as Dewey. They said that they wanted to see if they could get as much of the original cast back to revisit the characters. It was obvious that Courtney Cox was going to sign on that line. So now she's going to be playing Gail Weathers, teaming up with David Arquette as Dewey once again. As we've already reported, Radio or Not duo Olpin and Gillett will direct. This is one that's on my radar. I've not been that enamoured with the Scream franchise for the third and fourth films, but with those two behind it, directing it, and bringing it all back to the start again, kind of gets my appetite wetted. Did you watch the TV series? I gave it a shot. I got, like, two and a half episodes in and I just wasn't digging it. I, I didn't catch it personally. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't go for it. I got what they were trying to do, but it wasn't, it wasn't as clever as it thought it was. You know how the first screen film was so clever in the way that it, it basically emulated the slasher horror films, but knew what it was emulating was so cliche and so referenced it and was very like knowing throughout and really well done. The series tries to do the same, but, it feels deliberately fo- ham-fistedly forced in. Right. All the little nods and references of like, oh, but this is what will normally happen. Oh, just seems a bit like nod, nod, wink to the camera, as opposed to feeling like part of the natural flow of the story. 
it's interesting now uh, because we've had we've had movies like Cabin in the Woods as well, where you deconstruct horror movies has become a, pretty much the norm. It makes me wonder how they're going to deconstruct and where they're going to deconstruct it in, in modern horror movies. There's not there are tropes, but there are different tropes. Are they going yeah. to go for this, or is it going to be a sense of nostalgia? Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they go down the nostalgia path and just get it back to being a screen franchise film. But um, Tom Cruise in Space Update. Oh, which I think should be the title of the movie. Personally. Yeah, they should just call it Tom Cruise in Space. We still know next to nothing about it, aside from NASA and Elon Musk are helping with the shooting on location and Doug Lyman will be directing. But we do now know that Chris McQuarrie is hopping on board as producer and story advisor. And he's likely going to be assisting on the whole script. Well, that's that's Macquarie's role now is just just to purely work with with Tom Cruise. And the partnership is working great. I mean, the the three Cruise, Lyman, and Macquarie all work together on Edge of Tomorrow. Yes, which we and all know we love. We, we should do we that know as a deep what, dive if we get a chance. Oh yeah, that that's that's a great. That was so woefully underwatched on release. But um, the three of them working together on a space film. Macquarie working with Cruise anyway has delivered some of the best films of the past few years in my eyes, and I, I am really excited for this film. Whatever it, it could just be a film of Tom Cruise going up into space, and that's it. But I'm on board with it. <laughs> I heard an interview with Christopher Macquarie where he was talking about because he gets brought in a lot to help script doctor if there's a problem with plotting of a film if it's not working out, he'll be brought in to to help rectify those problems and work with the director or the writers to say, look, push it in this direction and this will get the payoff. Uh, I heard an interview with him and he was a little ambiguous about a film that he'd been working on in which he'd offered suggestions and the director clearly hadn't listened, but he left it, he left it a big question mark. Uh, I always think about that when I watched The Mummy to wonder if that was the film <laughs> that where, he didn't listen to him. where he didn't listen to him. Being a Tom Cruise movie and... Um, his name is credited on it. So yeah, I was wondered if it was the mummy and how that turned out is highly possible indeed. Yeah. Highly possible. If you see Chris McQuarrie's name attached to something, you know, kind of a level of quality minimal that you're going to get from it. Yeah. So when his name's attached to something and it turns out to be a mess, something's not gone right there, but yeah, that as, as we get more news on the Tom Cruise in space, obviously we will report on it because we are hugely excited about this one. We are big fans of the pairing of those names together. And let's, let's just hope that it delivers on what our expectations are going to be. And let's just hope they keep that title. Tom Cruise in space. Tom Cruise in space. Uh, Seth Rogen's been talking about his TMNT reboot film. Yeah. Now I noticed this. Um, is he going down the animation route? Is he going down uh, CGI? Is he going down uh, people in costumes? What do we know so far about his Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie? Not a great deal because oh. he's not really he's not really tackled that aspect of how he's going to be approaching it. However, he has suggested one approach that he believes hasn't been taken in any adaptations to date. And here's his quote. As a lifelong fan of Ninja Turtles, weirdly, the teenage part of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was always the part that stuck out to me the most. And as someone who loves teenage movies and who's made a lot of teenage movies and who literally got their start in their entire profession by writing a teenage movie, the idea of kind of honing in on that element was really exciting to us. I mean, not disregarding the rest, but really using that as a kind of jumping off point for the film. Now, knowing Seth Rogen and knowing how he's approached teenage boys films, and knowing what teenage boys are like, I've got to myself, 
Will this film just be the four turtles locked in their room, sulking and playing with their nunchucks and learning the secret of the ooze? Because um, <laughs> but I, I don't know. Been on, uh, 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 on being on um, Instagram <laughs> and being very grouchy all the time. <laughs> will, will this be super bad, the TMNT edition? <laughs> yeah. We can't go and fight crime today, Donatello, because I can't be bothered. I like I like Seth Rogen when he tackles comic book adaptations. We've seen what he's done with on TV when he's produced uh, Preacher, and even more on so The Boys. The Boys. So I've got the confidence that, he, as a fan of the product, he will hopefully do something. But I also remember Green Hornet. Yeah, which I've got some Green Hornet news, by the way. Ooh, oh, fire away, fire away. Kevin Segway Smith is producing a Green Hornet animated series. Ooh. With the idea that it will be closer, in essence, to Batman the Animated Series. So it will be kind of the West Coast LA version as opposed to a Gotham City version. So it's all going to be deep sunsets as opposed to dark nights. But he is, at the moment, leading on a Green Hornet Animated Series. Because, of course, he was attached to was attached for the movie when they were looking at bringing it back yeah. before Seth Rogen got involved. And those that was with Miramax just before Disney bought it. So the, the project sort of fell apart when Disney took over it. And of course, they got turned into a, into a comic series. It was adapted. His, his screenplay was adapted for that. So he's got a lot of love for, for uh, the Green Hornet. So long as he doesn't find a voice role for his daughter, because uh, I'm fed up with him putting her into every, everything that he does. That intrigues me. Uh, I think there's a lot of potential in a Green Hornet adaptation done well, and taking the up, taking the route of like the Batman animated series kind of approach. Oh, that's fantastic! That, that's your, that's your go-to for. I want it to look like this. Yeah, if you are making any comic book animated series now, if you can make it even close to that, you've got perfection on your hands. I think the only thing thing with Green um, Green Hornet for me is he doesn't have. He doesn't have much of a rose gallery, does he? He's not like he's not like Batman, no. which is which is that. So they're going to have to create a, a rogues for it. Yeah, I mean, in a way that gives them a lot more freedom and allows them to be a bit more adventurous. They're not tied down to established characters, so they can they can build their own new gallery of rogues and they can have a lot of fun with it. More news when we get it. Before we wrap up the news, uh, it's been a sad week for losses within the industry. Indeed, it has um, some, some major, major losses this week. I mean, one which people might not know the name of, but they'll understand the impact they had is Tom Pollock, who was an industry lawyer who also became chairman on Universal Pictures, overseeing films like Jurassic Park and the Back to the Future franchises, amongst other highly regarded films of the era. But he was the industry lawyer who worked with George Lucas way back in the 70s to secure his contract deal for merchandise rights and exclusivities. And which that changed. changed. It changed terms of Hollywood contracts forever. Everyone realised how much could be made from taking a percentage of merchandise and everyone wanted in it from actors, producers, directors everyone saw the potential in keeping that cash flow coming in after the film's gone. Which for so, Lucas was the ownership of, of those characters, the ownership of all the toy rights. Yep. That's what made him the money, more than anything else, more than box office. And this all came from Tom Pollock. So he, he was a hugely, hugely influential person behind the scenes within the industry through the 70s and working through to the 90s when with Universal, some of the biggest franchises that they ever made. And as you said, that's not the only loss we've had over the last we've week. Had, 
we've had Wilford Brimley, who you might not recognise the name, but you'll certainly recognise the face. He was in Cocoon, he was in The Firm, Hard Target, and he was in The Thing. And for that, we thank him. Age of 85, he had, yeah, he was one of those familiar presences, always as a secondary character, that you always knew what to expect from him. His, his very distinguishing moustache uh, was the first thing that you ever spotted whenever he popped up in a film. Absolutely brilliant actor, really good character actor. And yeah, 85's a good innings, a sad loss. And then we've also got the great Alan Parker. We'll be sadly, sadly missed. Alan Parker really, really invested. And I'm not just, I'm not just talking about financially with, with the choices he made for, as a filmmaker, but he invested in, in British film. He's synonymous with, with the British film industry over the last 40 years. You will have seen something by Alan Parker, surely, if you're a film fan, whether that I mean, be Bugsy Malone. His musicals, Bugsy Malone, Fame, Evita, The Commitments. Pink Floyd's The Wall. Pink Floyd's The Wall is one that I go back to over and over again. I love the album and I love what he did with visualising that album on screen. Midnight Express, which was one which was on my list and I've mentioned it as part of my films I need to see. Well, I've now seen it because... I felt that after the news came of him passing, I really needed to plug that gap. And I'm so glad I did. Such a harrowing film, but such a well-made film. Uh, Mississippi Burning, uh, Birdie, Angel Heart, Angela's Ashes. I mean, this is a CV of films that you should have watched them all. He's got such a... He had such a great eye, such a great vision. And like you say, he was very key to the British film industry. He was that, that league of film director that came out of commercials and television. So he had a visual eye. I'm not saying previously to all directors, but a lot of directors that came through the film, um, through film, he brought that commercial stylized look to films. You see it in fame. You see even into uh, films like Angel Heart, which I, which I adore. He had a, a, a stylistic eye. He had a, he had a sense of where, how to frame the camera. He had a sense of, of how to use drama. He not only invested in film, he became, he became the, the, the shining light for, for the British film industry. Uh, donated his, his personal archive to the British Film Institute, National yep. Archive in 2015. Uh, he received Royal Photographic Society uh, Lumiere Award for Major Achievements. Cinematography, video, and animation in 2000. He received BAFTA Academy Fellowship in 2013. Uh, he won. He won 19 BAFTA awards, 10 Golden Globes, six Academy Awards. His film Birdie was chosen for National Board of Review as one of the top 10 films of 1984. Uh, he was both active in British cinema and, and American cinema, along with founding member of the Directors Guild of Great Britain, and lectured in, in various film schools. He lived and breathed film. Uh, as we keep saying, he invested in British film. He kept it going, even in our darker periods where we've had so little turning out in, 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 in movies in the way that we should be. He was always there at the forefront of it. I didn't always agree with what he said about British film, but I always admired his passion for it. If you've not seen any of those films on the list that we read out, just just get them watched. You will not regret any of them. If, if I could choose one film if, to, to go and rewatch. It's a hard choice with so many. As I said, I yeah. love Angel Heart. I could always see Angel Heart again. I think it'd be Fame. I think I'd go back and watch Fame again. Yeah, it's a it's a film that 
people who've not seen it have this impression of what it's going to be because you know the tv series that is spun off and like oh it's just going to be about a dance academy nothing really no 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 it's a it's quite a gritty drama around a dance academy yeah it's, um, it's a tough film to be honest it's, it's not it's yeah not it's a, powerful it's not a sugar-coated look at, at the um at the industry at all it's uh it's a, it's a really gritty film about uh young people at school trying to make it in in some sort of creative career it's 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 a it's a great film for me if i was going to pick one out for someone i first ask them do you like pink floyd if they say no then i won't won't suggest the wall if they say yes they can watch the wall if they don't i will push them towards the commitments yeah i think i've seen the commitments lots and lots of times so it, it would go back to to something different yeah the commitments would it's a great film there's not much in his in his repertoire that i i didn't like there are the films i've liked more there was always something of interest in all of his films yeah We could have been anything that we wanted to be And it's not too late to change I'd be delighted to give it some thought Maybe you'll agree that we really aren't too If you're a fan of the podcast, then please feel free to subscribe. Just hit that subscribe button. If you want to leave us a review, then please do. We want to know what you think. We want you to share it with your friends. We've just got to build up our numbers and it's down to you. So please hit that subscribe button and please leave us a review. You can also find us on Twitter and that Twitter address is... At Filmfile UK. And we will uh, take your questions. Anything you want to bring up, just nice to have a nice chat. We could have a virtual cup of tea and a biscuit. That works for me. We don't want to go leaving digital cookies around everywhere, though. Oh, see what you did there, Andy? And that's where I'm going to quickly move on to Heavenly Creatures, <laughs> which is Andy's film uh, last week uh, in his ongoing search to basically fill in the gaps in his filmic his filmic choices. There are some, some films that really shouldn't be missing on there. Um, Heavenly Creatures was a 1994 New Zealand psychological thriller directed by Peter Jackson, which was the film for me that escalated him into sort of the big leagues from his smaller, uh, more gruesome horror films. It starred Melon Linsky and Kate Winslet and was based on a notorious 1954 Parker Hume murder case in Christchurch, New Zealand, with the film focusing on the relationship between the two teenage girls, which accumulates in the murder of Parker's mother and the events of the film span the period from their meeting in 1952 to the murder in 1954, the film received an Oscar nomination for Best Original Screenplay. Andy, what did you make of Heavenly Creatures? And I'm going to point out right from the get-go, I have not seen this film, which is the first film that we've talked about that I've not had a chance to see. So I'm in your hands for a change, Andy, and I'll just give <laughs> you the facts. Okay, well, th this was Peter Jackson after giving us Bad Taste, Meet the Feebles and Brain Dead, moving away from that kind of darkly comical horror to... Something very grounded. It's a film that changed the direction for his, his entire career, didn't it? 
Definitely. I mean, when it when it comes to adapting a real life murder story, most other creators go for telling the story of the murder. Whereas Jackson, in his first partnership with Fran Walsh in writing a film and researching it and creating it, he thought the more interesting way to approach it was to tell the personal story of the girl's friendship. And so he used the diaries of one of the girls in order to not only provide the narration which overlays the film, but to give a more personal feel of the journey. It's not a film about the murder. It's a film about how teenage girls' view on the world can get shifted for them to do something so horrific. It's got an early early Peter Jackson feel to it. Uh, camera style is very much early Peter Jackson. And there's a general feel of a continuous momentum throughout. But what makes this stand out really well as a great example of how Peter Jackson could adapt like a, a serious story was the girls in the diaries, it was discovered that they fantasized about a fourth world that they imagined like was the new world that only they could see and you could move on to there. And within that world, there's eerie life-like representations of plasticine men that they've been sculpting. And they have like small little journeys within there to give a fantastical feel. The true skill of this film, and this is a film that I thoroughly loved. I thought it, you know, Melanie Linsky and Kate Winslet in their very first starring roles. Absolutely, absolutely brilliantly stunning straight from the offset. Not, not over the top, not trying to be menacing or anything, just being innocent teenage girls who maybe, maybe just don't have a true grasp on reality. But the true skill in this film is how it draws from those diaries. It works to get you under the skin of the pair and to see how they turn to murder is the only choice that they could see to keep their friendship going. It never casts judgment either. It simply retells the events from the perspective of the young murderesses. I, uh, yeah, you say you've not seen it. I now, I'm now going to be urging you to watch this film. <laughs> I will. I will get round to it. <laughs> it is, th this is a great segue for Jackson moving away from those like over-the-top dark horrors to his more grounded stories. And yes, he goes back to fantasy when it comes to his Lord of the Rings series. But this was a, a an early example of what he could do with a real-life story, add in some fantastical elements. And he, Weta Digital were created in order to bring to light the fantasy visions of this film. This is where Weta Digital started. So this was basically the start of Peter Jackson as we know him today. His partnership with Fran Welsh, Weta Digital, and more serious storytelling. Yeah, there's a lot of firsts with this. As we said, that that Peter Jackson, this was his grown-up film, um, his previous films, which are great, but are tacky, almost Z-movie experiences. You know, they're, yeah. they're, they're splatter movies with bad taste. Uh, Meet the Feebles is, is over the top and uh, it can completely gross in places. This is where he started to move on as a director. Without this film, he wouldn't have made Lord of the Rings, I don't think. He wouldn't no. have opened up oh, that confidence that he has as a director. He wouldn't have had that uh, ability to, to to use special effects in a way that that became part of the environment of the story. And um, from what I know of this film, that's what what this fourth world is. It's it's yeah. the girls' fantasy come to life, but it's also it, it keeps it keeps the film. While grounded, it, it takes it into a into a world that you can you know that is an extension of what what Peter Jackson does very very well, and we've seen seen how that's grown in his other films. It's it's a serious film, 
but it still has those moments for for, for lapses into into fantasy. I, the film is shot almost entirely in the locations of the actual events as well, which which means was in Christchurch in South Islands yep. of New Zealand, which which means that it feels real, it feels believable. It's it's a great tale. It's the, you know. The true story is fascinating to explore anyway. And this is one of the films that after you watch the film, you will go online and you will research the true story and find out what actually happened to the girls. I always like that. I always like when one film leads you down that, that rabbit hole, especially with, of course, with a true life film, that you, that you need to know more, you want to know more because you've, you've been absorbed by, by the experience of watching it. The film did very well critically, if not, not box office wise, um, it gained it gained the attention of uh, the Weinstein's and the, those that cannot be spoken about. But it gave Miramax the film to to release the film in the states, where it did pretty well at the box office. Even though uh, it couldn't be called a box office runaway, but it, it had a limited box office success. But it did open the door for Peter Jackson to step yeah. into Lord of the Rings to make films like King Kong. Uh, to make films like The Lovely Bones, which is which is almost a, to a degree a, a close cousin of this, uh, and um, it made Peter Jackson a kind of go-to fantasy guy that understood realism at the same time as uh, the fantastical elements as well. It turned him from being that um, culty, low-budget schlock director, which was a bit of a joke, to oh, ow, this this guy's got some potential. We could give him something different. So next week we're going to go for a film that I have seen, which is helpful, <laughs> but go down to a film which is really of its era in a way that it was almost defining of, of the era that was made. I'm, I'm really surprised you've not seen this. There was a sequel that you, you don't even have to bother with because it brings nothing to the party, <laughs> but go back and watch Oliver Stone's Wall Street for a tour de force performance from not only Charlie Sheen, Yes, Charlie Sheen, who, when he was a, considered to be a serious actor, but Michael Douglas in, in a film that expresses the thoughts and desires of the 1980s probably better than nearly any other film. So your mission next week, whether you choose to accept it, which I hope you will because it's a big slot of the programme, um, your film for next week <laughs> is Wall Street. You're just waiting for the week that is like, okay, and so Andy hasn't seen it. It's like, yeah, I've still not seen it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> a few minutes before we're about to record. That's, that's my worry. Well, you're ahead of the game because you mentioned today Midnight Express. Yep. So I got that watched. And, uh, oh, what a powerful film. It is. What and, a really, we're talking really about harrowing. Yeah, it's not a film. It's a great film. I've seen it twice. I never really want to see it again. And that's not because I, I dislike it anyway. And, and funny enough, a little bit like we just said about, about the Peter Jackson film. Yeah. There was a very good documentary about what happened. To, to Billy Hayes, the lead character of Midnight Express, uh, a few years ago, which which sort of filled in in the gaps, not only into his life, but also to, around the making of the movie, what what was real and what, what wasn't real as well, which was created just for the film. But uh, yeah, fantastic film. And of course, a relation to the film you're seeing next week, as it was written by Oliver Stone. Okay, so because we've not had uh, a chance to be sat in a darkened cinema reviewing films, what we've been doing every week is taking a deep dive, deep dive into classic movies that we can look back on. Uh, last week, we looked at The Matrix from afar and saw how that has held up wonderfully. It's kind of led us down a science fiction route and it led us to the 1972 environmentally themed American 
sci-fi film directed by Douglas Trumbull, Silent Running. So this kind of came out in the wake of 2001, which Douglas Trumbull was responsible for the uh, effects work on. So it's in the future, all plant life on Earth has become extinct. Many specimens of plants as possible have been preserved in a series of uh, greenhouse-like spaceships. Uh, and in one particular one, the Valley Forge, forming part of a fleet of American airline space freighters currently just outside the orbit of Saturn. In Valley Forge, Bruce Dern plays Freeman Lowell, one of four crewmen aboard, is the resident botanist and ecologist who carefully maintains a variety of plants for the eventual return to Earth and the reforestation of the planet. And Lowell spends most of his time with three drones, cultivating crops and attending to the animal life, when, out of nowhere, the crew gets orders to jettison and destroy the domes and return the freighters to commercial service back to Earth. And that's where the film kicks off. I have so much love for this film. We were talking earlier um, about seeing films at the cinema. I wish I'd seen this at the cinema. I would have been far too young when it came out. I absolutely adored it. I saw it on TV. Whenever there was a viewing of it, I uh, I I would be all over it. Absolutely adore Silent Running. It's the perfect sort of follow on to 2001 as it was the first other science fiction that gave you scope about being in in space. I see it as a close cousin to 2001. It's very much of its time. It's only got a short running time of 89 minutes, but none of the 89 minutes is wasted. I, I, I can't say any more than I absolutely adore it. Andy, don't tell me now that you hate it. Oh, no. Um, I remember when I first saw this, I think it was BBC Two did a series of sci-fi films at like 6pm every Wednesday. And this was one of the ones, because things like this and Dark Star, I got to see during that sci-fi specials on BBC Two. And I was captivated by it. I thought that, yeah, there's there's all the things, it influenced so many films that came afterwards. It's a bums in space. It doesn't portray future society as advanced and enlightened, but shows a bunch of guys just doing a job that they're clearly tired of. Yeah. You know, starting off with the, the, the other members of the crew who are racing around and causing havoc in buggies because they're bored. They've been on this assignment for ages. And this is a theme that got echoed in films such as Dark Star and Alien. Yeah, found, yeah. Its, found its sort of setting with, you know, working class guys in space as opposed to, you know, the gleaming astronauts that, that everything had been before and up to 2001. And even the even the sci-fi sitcom Red Dwarf is heavily influenced by it. And, you know, the creators of Red, Red, Red Dwarf, uh, Rob Grant and Doug Naylor, have said that this film was an inspiration for where they launched from. It's such a, a simple story, 
it's a warning for humanity. It's, you know, you've destroyed the planet. You need to protect the planet and you need to find a way to keep nature alive, even if humanity has to die. And it's a, things take a dark turn quite early on in the film. And it is all about Freeman Lowell, played brilliantly by Bruce Dern. Yeah, and it's crazy. Everything he can, everything he can to preserve this last bit of plant life and wildlife that no longer exists. This is this, this is a Noah's Ark that he is trying to protect. He's a captivating presence on screen. He's so well placed in the role. There's never a moment that you just think, oh, would this just get on with the story? Because it is the whole thing just flows. Absolutely love this film. Going back and rewatching it was such a joy because it's been a good like decade and a half, maybe two decades since I last watched it. And it's one of them that at the back of the mind is like, oh, is it still as good as it? I'm not sure. Uh, but as soon as it started, I was just like, no, I'm in. I mean, I was just about to point out all just, I mean, a list of positives on it, um, starting with Bruce Dern. It was always that edgy actor, uh, and he's always been very charismatic, but he's always he always brings some sort of quirkiness. That quirkiness plays off. You know, the, the, he's basically uh, an interstellar tree hugger, and, yeah. uh, and but he's somebody who cares passionately about about preserving the environment so it's got that it's got that very still today relevant green aspect to it um douglas trumbull as we said had been involved with creating the effects for 2001 uh he took elements that were unused in 2001 such as the stargate sequence which was going to be set around saturn and he brought that into into silent running yeah. It's got a, a very earthy look, as you said, you know, uh, working guys in space, which influenced films like Alien. So there's there's a sense of it feeling real all the way through. And then there are the drones, the three drones, which he nicknames Huey, Dewey and Louie. Hugely inspirational for um, everything that followed. You know, the, these were robots with personalities that has become a staple of sci-fi ever since. Small robot companions. Would we have had R2-D2 without Huey, Dewey and Louie? very distant cousins of R2-D2, and they were played by amputees to give them that robotic feel. They're, you know, they're small, squat-like robots which don't appear human, uh, but they, they're embedded with personality in the same way that R2-D2 is embedded with, with personality. I, I find it interesting with the use of the robots, the his, his interactions with them, because he's very much, like you say, a hippie. He's like nature and animals and plants, but he has a connection with these three drones that is like the bridge between the natural and the futuristic to show that maybe mankind could have survived alongside nature all along if he just paid attention. And he reprograms and trains them to tend to the plants, which leads to some like quite amusing scenes when he's trying to train them how to dig to plant a tree and they just drop things. Uh, he builds that connection with the technology that he's tried to shun through his interactions with these three robots. It was... Surprisingly, looking back at this film, I, I didn't realise that Michael Cimino was one of the screenwriters, as was Stephen Botchko, who went on to, to create uh, fantastic series like L.A. Law and uh, NYPD Blue, uh, and my particular favourite, uh, Hill Street Blues, which I think is probably the element that gave it that grittiness. If anything now, and, and I'm, I'm just scraping at being slightly critical, is that the soundtrack is very much of its time and a little bit sort of hippie-ish uh, with uh, popular folk singer, songwriter, Joanna Bays contributing two songs to it. The rest is quite a majestic, uh, a majestic score. But saying that, I had the, the soundtrack album 
and I absolutely adore the Joanna Bay songs on it. But if anything, that dates it of having that sense of it being uh, an early 70s film. But other than that, the special effects still held up very, very well. In fact, the special effects and the design of the craft are so good that they were used in Battlestar Galactica, uh, as yep. footage for, for part of the fleet of the ships. But they are iconic. The, once you see them, you totally understand the design of them and where you've seen it before. I have nothing bad to say about Silent Running. It's a film of its time. It's a shame that Douglas Trumbull didn't direct more. He was responsible for the special effects on Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the first Star Trek movie, Blade Runner, right up to Tree of Life. And he only directed one of the other movie, which was Christopher Walk and Natalie Wood, the last film that Natalie Wood made, uh, Brainstorm. But I, I think he had potential as a director, and it's a, it's a shame that he stayed in just the special effects. Not a shame because he was a great special effects master, but, it, uh, you know looking at silent running he knew how to mix effects work with character work and this film is, is character driven at the end of the day as pretty much all good sci-fi from that era where it was very much about the characters and not about the explosions etc marvelous film well worth checking out if you've never checked it out yet track down a copy of it and explore that great era for sci-fi with a message absolutely couldn't recommend it highly enough um, that's our deep dive for this week, Silent Running. Okay, at this stage of the show, just as we start to wrap up, I always ask Andy, Andy, what have you been watching, playing with, reading, just been, has made your life happy over the last week? What is your <laughs> neat thing? Well, I have been reading um, through the Walking Dead graphic novels, uh, but I've already had them as a neat thing when I picked them all up for the discount price on Humble Bundle a while ago. So for my neat thing for this week, it's sticking with graphic novels. And it's something that I only latched onto recently because I didn't realize we had access to this. If you have an Amazon Prime subscription, not only do you get your Swift deliveries, your special deals, your Prime music, and your video on demand, they also have access to Prime books. Really? I wasn't aware of this. Which has a load of classic books. It has the classic novels that, you know, Great Expectations, things like that will be in there. There'll be some modern horror and thriller books get put in there and it rotates around every now and then. But there's also a wealth of graphic novel collections to explore on the service for free. From DC, Dark Horse, Image, Marvel, there's a selection from everything. For fans of Star Wars, there's collections of the omnibus editions from all eras dropping in there from time to time, as well as some of the more up-to-date continuity titles. So it's a great resource for free reading. You know, I wasn't aware of that at all. It's one of those things that Amazon kind of just put in there as an extra extra feature without actually letting anyone know. And these are all downloadable to Kindle? These are all downloadable to Kindle. If you go onto your Kindle account, if you go into Amazon, look for Prime Books, add things into there, they'll be in your Fantastic. Kindle account. I wasn't aware of that. That's great. I will check that out. It's a, it's a great, great selection as well. Some really good, like, story arcs and storylines from all the key publishers within there as well as some indie publisher stuff is in there as well so you can explore out a bit more well worth checking out okay my neat thing is it's something i've not seen but it's it's uh it's just a, a genuine mention a few years ago i was running a tv channel in in leeds and i commissioned some some comedy by up and coming uh, new new voices. One was a show that I was heavily involved with called The Cool Beans Television Show. If you can find some episodes of that on YouTube. 
The other one was a, a series called Uncle Ted, which was a, a, a very reminded me of very early uh, uh, Vic Reeves. It was surreal. It wasn't always funny, but it was, and it, some of it was quite challenging, but it was always imaginative. Uh, and, a, and a guy called Richard Turner created Uncle Ted uh, with Philip Stokes, and I, I commissioned the series. And I never got to see it out because I left the channel uh, before before it broadcast. And I remember I remember Richard bringing it over and looking at it, and the head of uh, head of the the, the organisation looking at me, going, "What is this?" And I went, "You know what." It's different, and this is what we're here to do: is to find new voices. I heard from from Richard Turner just the other day, and he told me that he's made a, a film version uh, of Uncle Ted, and it's gone straight to uh, Amazon Prime and can be watched on on Prime Video. Cool. Not I got a chance to watch it yet, but I'm I'm so proud that, um, uh, and he thanked me for for <laughs> giving him his initial start. And uh, Uncle Ted is a self proclaimed comic genius and world's greatest showman. And we follow him on his wild adventures. He attempts to make the ultimate stage show, Project X. So for homegrown talent, uh, Richard's from uh, Wakefield. Uncle Ted is his debut film. And in some small way, uh, I played a part in it. And I'm really proud of Richard for, for doing that. I will get around to watching it and, and picking his brains at how he got it onto uh, Amazon Prime. But, but that's Uncle Ted on Amazon Prime. So that's both of us. We're plugging Amazon this week. So Netflix, you're a thing of the past now. Amazon's yeah, Netflix, where it's at. Keep up. Uh, <laughs> send us something. That's all you have to do. And that's it for this yeah. week. Uh, <laughs> thanks for listening. We'll see you again next week. I'm away for a few days. Uh, Andy, you've not been uh, feeling too good, so you get better. Yep. I've just got to veg up and what veg, veg up? out. Veg up. Veg out. Work, work. You know. <laughs> I'm going to veg. I'm vegging up. I'm putting the veg yeah, up you're there. you're vegging. This is um, a vegetable <laughs> in there somewhere and got, you're happy. And continue with my rewatch of the Star Trek movies. So that's it for this week on The Film File. But remember, on Earth, everywhere you go, the temperature is 75 degrees. Everything is the same. All the people are exactly the same. Now, what kind of life is that? We'll let you know next week. That's it for The Film File.